0: Okay, y'all, you ready? Let's go ahead and take our seats. Um, Hey, listen, if anybody's asking about Dumbledore, I have not seen him. I don't know what's happened to him, if anybody's asking, just in case. Oh, man. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned um, that I spent the summer, uh, after my junior year uh, in college in the former Soviet Union, when it was the Soviet Union, I told you about the scary border crossing at the Finnish border, the AK-47s. I told you about all our Bibles and all the students' Bibles of these teams that were various places that were going to other places we were pretending not to know, got their Bibles taken. I told you about being questioned by the KGB, right? They wanted names. They wanted to know who the people were that we were talking about Jesus with. They wanted their names. Uh, but But did I tell you about the midnight miracle? Did I tell you about that? I didn't? Oh, man. Well, let me tell you about the midnight miracle. So, our team. So, there are, again, there's probably about 25-ish teams. Uh, our team of four, four dudes from all over the United States, different campuses. Um, what's really, really strange, of these 25-ish teams, uh, we were one of two teams uh, that got to drive a car, what the Russians called a Lada, and they called it a, a tin can, we got to drive a car all over the empire. Now, that's, to this day, it's one of the greatest mysteries of the whole trip. How would the Russian authorities allow four 20-something-year-old dudes to travel all over their empire in a car? Freedom. Because everybody else, the rest of the teams, uh, they were chained to what's called a tourist it's where uh, everybody knew it was a fake tourist agency. It was run by the KGB that monitored all the people that came in from outside of the country. You went, you had your own little and tourist guide. You had your own little and tourist bus. <laughs> you had your own in tourist hotels, right? They monitored everything about you. Your rooms were bugged. You knew it. But all the other teams had that kind of experience. But we got to drive a car all over the vast Soviet empire, free, roaming free. I mean, how does that happen, right? So, what was it like? Like, what was it like, Jeff? Well, here's like, they gave us a map, and on the map, there were dots. Just think of the dots as cities, because that's exactly what they were. Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, Minsk, Kharkov, Kiev, right? And then the dots that were the cities, and then you'd have the line, I guess that was the highway, and then there was a star under the dot, and that was the Entourist Hotel, which we were required to stay at. So imagine if you were from Istanbul, and you were visiting the United States for the first time, and you were given six major cities like, oh, let's just say New York, Boston, Philadelphia, LA, Chicago, Atlanta. And your map is, oh, oh, there's Atlanta. It's the dot. Well, how do you get to Atlanta? Oh, the line. Well, when you get to Atlanta, how do you get around Atlanta? Where are the streets? Where's the hotel? Oh. It's the dot, details, details. Who needs such details? So what we ended up doing uh, is we would, um, you want the midnight miracle, I know, here it comes. What we would do is that we would drive through the night to these various locations, because we knew we were average. On average, we were lost about two to three hours every night trying to find our place in the city when we would go from place to place. And so we did this so we could spend all of our time with people during the day, And then we'd have one driver, one navigator, and two sleeping dudes. And that's how we we rolled for the whole summer. Uh, So I'm driving. Jim's the navigator. uh, And the two dudes are snoring in the back. Uh, Somewhere around 3 a.m., I'm falling asleep. Jim's Jim's barking out instructions. And in, in the middle of nowhere, it got really, really quiet. I think I'm starting to roll. I know I'm hearing people snore in the back. I'm not hearing from Jim. And then all of a sudden, Jim yells, turn here! I wake up, so to speak, and I turn. Uh, And that's when the strangest thing happened. Imagine traveling about 65, 70 miles an hour, and the car shifting to the right, and then... I mean, how would you describe the sound? How about, like, maybe a monster tearing your car apart? Whatever that sounds like, this is what it sounds like. And the noise was unbelievable. What did it feel like? I don't know, maybe, like, when a, a roller coaster runs off the track? That's kind of what it felt like. And all of a sudden, two dudes wake up screaming their heads off, right? And it's like, you know, rise and shine. Uh, it's uh, bang, 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 bang. And then we finally stop, Jim opens the door, he's on the, he's on the driver's side, and this is what he says, literally, he opens the door and he says, hey dudes, watch your step, it's a doozy. <laughs> so evidently what happens is they do not have quick lubes in that part of the world at that part of the time like we do, you know, we just pull in and get our oils changed. So what they would do is that they would, they would change their oil on the side of the roads, and they have what were called oil pits, and oil pits would be about probably about f- just enough for a, a, you know, a large fellow to be able to fit in. It'd be deep enough, about six, seven feet, just enough for a large fellow to, to stand and reach up and undo the oil. And it would be about 20 feet long because you needed big trucks to be able to roll over this. And you needed at least two cars because you know there is a lot of oil changes going on over there. And apparently, we discovered one of those. And I drove right down the center of it Two wheels on the road, two wheels hanging off the pit. So even as we we said what we were about to say next, let's lift it out. It sounded hollow to us. So we get over, and we got four guys. We're on each side, and and we lift. (laughs) I don't even know if the shock went up. You know, it was that, oh, you know, it was just one of those, you know, and we're 20-something strapping dudes, man. And it was like, oh, oh. And we did it again. 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 And we did it again until we collapsed against the car, and we're huffing, and we're puffing, and we're dripping with sweat. And then finally, one of one, I heard one of the guys—I don't know who it was—he goes, "This sucks." We're all nodding. Yep. Desperate's a good word. Desperate in the night, even better. I mean, what are we going to do? Three in the morning. Somewhere in a city called Minsk, which is like the largest Belarus city today. Well, there's always one of them on a mission team. You always have one. You always have one in a church leadership team. You always have one in a community group. You always have one that leads the Bible study. You always have one that's part of a missionary team or a church leadership team. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. There's always one. There's always that what? That super saint in the group. Right? And so the one on our team said, let's pray. And I think I might have rolled my eyes. I don't know. Just say it. I might have rolled my eyes. So we prayed. And then we said, let's just try to lift this thing one last time. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Oh, we actually started looking at each other. And I was still doubting Thomas. I was such a doubting Thomas that I went, (laughs) one-handed, <laughs> and we laid this thing. Not only did we lift it out the, out of the pit, we went, hey, let's keep going just a tad and laid it down. Are you desperate in the night? Are you desperate in the night? If you are, please hear me. If you are, look at me. This text is for you. It's absolutely for you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Okay, so starting at Luke 11, 1, here we go. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Um, this is interesting. So what, and then Jesus says, you know, when you pray, say, it's going to come up here. Now, this is probably the most famous, it should be the most famous prayer in the world. What's interesting about this particular prayer in Luke, though, is that it's 37 words. The more, the more famous popular one is Matthew 6, which was 57 words, yeah, 57 words. So what we're going to look at here is a bare-bones prayer. I mean, it's a blunt prayer. So here we go. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, right? And then it goes in and says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, no one saw this coming. If you were designing a prayer on how to pray, you would would you have, you know, now give us our daily bread. The first personal petition <laughs> the first personal prayer, the most famous prayer in the world, and the the petition is, can you give us some gluten-free bread, hold the asparagus. John Knox, when when he was in Scotland, he prayed, give me Scotland or I die. Some medieval monk probably prayed, make me holy like Augustine. I know every preacher has prayed, can I preach like spurgeon. And then some of you you know you're you're thinking, "Dang, all I'm praying for right now is can you just give me a boyfriend or a girlfriend?" Right? What an unamazing personal petition. How unamazing can you get? "Can you give me some bread?" So let's keep going. And forgive us our sins as we forgive ourselves and forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Forgiveness is the longest topic treated in this prayer. Two lines. But don't hold your breath because we're already moving on. And lead us into temptation. Oh, that's it. That's the end. What a strange prayer. Then in verse 5, and he said to them, so which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, and for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Which of you has a friend who will answer from within and say, do not bother me, the door is shut, my children are in bed with me, I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, now here's the literal reading, I tell you, even if he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord. Uh, so, give us clarity to the mind. Shine on the page right now, Lord. Uh, make it real to our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are you desperate in the night? Okay, so we're focusing on verses 5 through 8, but here's what you need to know about 1 through 4. I'm just going to tell you a couple things you need to know. 1 through 4 is about how to pray. 5 through 8 is going to be why to pray. There you go. You got the passage. What's interesting, though, about 11, 1 through 4 of this famous prayer, it's actually pretty funny. I mean, think about it. I mean, look what the Lord teaches us to pray as John taught, us, taught his disciples. Gosh, Jesus, you're not as good a Christian as John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist has his quiet time every day. He has a 500-page discipleship manual that he trains his disciples in. He has a best-selling book on prayer. I I think that's pretty hilarious if you ask me, right? So 11, 1 through 4 is how to pray. 5 through 8 is why to pray. So why should we pray? I mean, why do we need to pray? Uh, Why do you want to pray? Why is prayer like the most instinctive human thing we can do? In other words, when you talk about a human being and you talk about the most instinctive impulse, the most involuntary drive in a human being, what would you say? You know what the Bible says? Prayer. You pray. And you say, well, I don't go to church and I don't believe in God. You know what the Bible says? You still pray. Well, I grew up in a, in a part of the world where more Eastern-dominated religions dominate, and uh, we don't acknowledge a, a personal God at all. And the answer is, the Bible says, well, yeah, you pray too. The most instinctive thing that a human being can do is pray. So why pray? Why do we pray? Why do we do so whether we want to or not? And then why would we want to? Well, the answer is, did you see it in the text? The answer, of course, is because of impudence. Impudence. And yet, verse 8, because of his impudence, he will rise, the friend that was sleeping, and give him whatever he needs. So what does impudence mean? You see this impudence, whatever it means, you see though it connects with God. This is so important. Impudence connects with God. God sees impudence. God feels impudence. God takes impudence into his soul. In other words, impudence moves God. Impudence reaches the deep waters of God's heart. And when God sees impudence, it goes into into his guts, as the text would say, which we've been looking at for a couple of weeks. His heart churns with mercy and compassion wherever impudence is found. So whatever impudence means, here's the important point. It gets things done with God. It connects with him. It moves him. So the traditional understanding, the most popular understanding, the most widely accepted understanding in all the books and all the theology and all the Bible translations is impudence means persistence. dogged commitment, sold-out passion. Maybe a book like Desiring God will be written. The most popular Bible translation in the world is the NIV, and it says it this way, yet because of the man's boldness, his friend will get up and give him what he needs. Uh, What's considered the most literal, essential literal translation in the world, English, we're talking English here, obviously, uh, is the NASB. I debate that. I think it's the ESB, which is what we use, but hey. Uh, They call it this. Yet because of his persistence, his dogged commitment, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The most popular English translation in human history, King James Version says it this way. Yet because of his importunity, which means his insistence, his pestering petitioning, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So why pray? Why pray? Because if you pray enough, if you pray passionate enough, if you're sold out enough, if you're committed enough, if you obey enough, if you're faithful enough, if you're sincere enough, God will give you what you need. God will help you. God will rescue you. God will, if you need some area of your life changed, he'll change you finally. He'll sanctify you is the theological word. If you do so long enough, hard enough, fast enough, passionate enough, God will connect with you. Why pray? Because of impudence, of course. A dogged commitment to God. A dogged commitment to others. A dogged commitment to mission. A dogged commitment to loving people. A dogged commitment to obedience and being faithful and trusting him. A dogged commitment to being brave in such times as these. dogged courage. Some of you are struggling your relationship with God this morning because you lack impudence. You're not committed enough. Some of you are struggling in your marriage this morning and you're struggling as a parent and as a good neighbor and as a good citizen and a student and an obedient child because you lack impudence. You're not committed enough. Some of you are going to struggle at Baylor this fall and you're going to struggle at Valor and Live Oak and University and Waco High and China Spring and Lorena and Robinson and Midway. Did I leave any out? Because you lack commitment. So please hear me. Please hear me. If this is you, welcome to the human race. You're a human being, a broken, fallen, even as Paul says in Romans 7, describing a Christian, conflicted human being. Why pray? The answer is impudence. And yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. But there's also another meaning for impudence. It's the least popular. It's the most unknown meaning. It's an unreached meaning. Nobody knows about it. Nobody in the church knows about it today. Nobody that writes popular books and sells lots of money unlike my book Doesn't know about it. No one writes about it. There are no theologies about it. No confessions about it. Modern. you got to go way back to find it. you got to get out a shovel and you got to start digging to find the meaning of this word impudence. This other meaning of impudence called shameless desperation. It's the absolute raw desperation and need. In other words, it's being desperate in the night. The dude's not waking up his friend and then, you know, in those days, I cannot imagine, but everybody, including the kids, probably share the same bed. It's just weird to me. If you wake up your friend, you're waking up his family, but you're not only waking up your friend and waking up his family in the middle of the night, you're also going to wake up his neighbors. And then you're going to wake up the community, and you know that what happens, you're going to wake up the dog, and when you wake up the dog, you wake up the neighbor's dog, and when you wake up the neighbor, all the dogs are barking, you wake up everybody, right? All manners, relational manners are out the window. The friend, the dude's not waking up his friend in the middle of the night because he's committed. He's waking up his friend in the middle of the night Because he's desperate. Because he's in need. Because he needs his friend. Why pray? It's real simple. And Jesus is, he wants it to be so simple. I mean, I can just see him rolling his eyes at the super saints. Saying, hey man, John taught his disciples to pray. Can you teach us? I can just see him. He probably rolled his eyes. He wants to make it real simple. He has a simple prayer. I mean, it was so abbreviated, right? (laughs) 37 words from his famous uh, Matthew 6 one. And then when you get here, he wants you to know why to pray in the most barest, prompting possible. Because you need God. Because you need God. Because you need him. The human condition needs God. Being a human being means you need God. So you pray. There's another reason. Do you see it? And he said to them, which of you has a friend? First time. Well, go to him in the middle of the night and say friend. Second time. Let me three loaves for a friend, third time of mine, has arrived on a journey, and I will have nothing to set before him. And then which of you, this friend would answer within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. And then there's a fourth time friend is mentioned in verse 8. So friend is a big deal. So Jesus is saying, can you imagine a friend like this? I mean, this is so incredible. He's talking like us, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine a friend like this? Can you imagine a friend, you going to a friend in your desperate hour in the middle of the night, and your friend's saying, No, yet, nine, nay, nope, whatever your language, can you imagine such a friend? And Jesus is saying, Neither can I. And when you go to God, who is a good friend desperate in the night what do you think he does he jumps out of bed he runs to the door he rips it open and gives you whatever you need because God is the light sleeper for you Some of you are asking, but Jeff, how do I know God is my friend? How do I know God is a light sleeper for me? It just doesn't feel like it, right? That's not my experience with prayer. Maybe it's yours because you're the super saint, right? Because you're the pastor. Now, I can tell you right now, if I want prayers to get answered, I go to my wife. I don't pray them. How do you think I even got here? I wanted to go to Boston for crying out loud. She prayed we'd go to Waco. Some of you are whispering, but I'm not a good friend to God. I'm not committed enough to God. There are those of you, too, that are huffing and puffing and dripping with sweat right now. Did I tell you about the midnight miracle? Here it is. Are you ready for it? In this story, God is the sleeper, the sleeping friend. And he meets you at midnight to meet your needs. Midnight, the darkest hour, the deepest reaches of the night, where you're most desperate, God meets you at midnight. The midnight miracle is this that God meets you in your sin to meet your needs. God meets you in your shame to meet your needs. God meets you in your guilt to meet your needs. God meets you in your death to meet your needs. And God meets you in all the little deaths of life. What are the little deaths of life? The little deaths of life like disrespect. The little deaths of life like rejection. The little deaths of life like failure, the little deaths of life like I didn't measure up, the little deaths of life like if you're going to school for the first time, a bad grade. Maybe you've never had a bad grade. Come talk to me. I can help you. (laughs) I'll make you feel so good about yourself. The midnight miracle is that God jumps out of bed runs to the door, rips it open with a heart churning with compassion for you to meet you where you're desperate in the night. This is what the cross is all about. Will he meet me in the middle of the night? All you have to do is, oh, he did at the cross the most desperate hour in human history, my most desperate hour. Will he meet me in this place and that place? Look at the cross. Yep, he met me there. He met me there when I had no desire for him. I wasn't seeking him. I wanted nothing to do with him. But did you notice how he meets you? This is absolutely incredible. Did you notice how? I mean, it's a little sneaky, it's sneaky. It's so sneaky that you might doubt that I'm actually, the text is saying this, but I believe it is. And the reason why is what's so great, when you you get into the original languages, words are used consistently the same way throughout a writer, right? So even if it's talking about uh, a material thing that's happening, like get up or sleeping and arising, what's interesting is you follow that word, it's only used maybe in that incident and then at the resurrection, Kind of interesting. It's so sneaky. It's so sneaky that you're like, ah, I don't know. It's so sneaky that scholars are like, ah, I don't know. But I'm going to tell you the sneaky meaning anyway. Because I believe the sneaky meaning is the intentional meaning. And it's this Did you see how he meets you? How did the friend who represents God meet you? By rising from the death of sleep. By being a light sleeper. Desperation doesn't hold him down. Sin doesn't hold him down. Your little deaths don't hold him down. Death doesn't hold him down. Your shame doesn't hold him down. Your guilt doesn't hold him down. The wreckage and ruin of just being a human being doesn't hold him down because he's a light, the light sleeper. You need to pray. You need to pray because you're desperate in the night. You need God. So pray. Jesus is your good friend. He's the light sleeper. So pray. Let me pray for us right now. Oh, Lord.